Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. This is Nashville. I'm senior producer Steve Harouche sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. Nissan and General Motors have been building electric cars here in Middle Tennessee for years. But when Ford announced it would build a new mega campus near Memphis, it was a clear sign that Tennessee has become a destination for electric vehicle production. The company said that the $5.6 billion project would enable them to help lead America's shift to electric vehicles. And increasingly, Tennessee is becoming a place that could play a major role in that shift as well. Not just for cars either, but for parts all up and down the EV supply chain. Why is this happening and why now? We'll get to that later in the hour. But first, the Tennessee legislative session is nearing the halfway point and there have already been plenty of surprises. For starters, one top Republican has been squaring off with his anti-abortion counterparts over a plan to add an exception to the state's abortion law. There's also been debate over what lawmakers should wear at the state legislature. Here to walk us through what's happened so far and what to expect in the weeks ahead is WPLN's political reporter, Blaze Ganey. Blaze, welcome back to This is Nashville. Yeah, glad to be back. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right, so let's start with abortion. Uh, Last summer, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and that led to a total ban on abortion here in Tennessee, starting at conception with no exceptions for rape, incest, or to save the life of the pregnant person. So now state Republicans aren't exactly going back on that, but they are trying to add an exception to the law. Blaze, can you explain what the law says and what Republicans want to do? Yeah, so the current law, like you said, uh, is a total abortion ban. The only time a doctor would be able to perform an abortion is if they deem it medically necessary to save the life of the pregnant person. But there's a catch to that, and they have to prove that they are innocent rather than being seen as innocent first. So they could face jail time and lose their license if they perform an abortion now. That's the affirmative defense we've heard about. Yes. Um, But, you know, Republicans have said that that was not the intent of the law. And so now they are looking to sure up what the law says and create a way for if doctors have determined a fetus would not be able to live outside of the womb, then they could perform perform an abortion. But there's a several different definitions. I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm a reporter. So I didn't list them all out here, but that's the simplest way that I can explain it. Okay, so they're they're talking about adding some sort of exception. Um, and But last week, uh, Speaker Cameron Sexton kind of got into it with the main lobbyist for Tennessee Right to Life over this issue, right? What happened? Yeah, so the Tennessee Right to Life is obviously against the bill. Uh, they've already said that the current law is what they want, um, but the lobbyist, Will Brewer, went into the meeting last week and told lawmakers that if they don't vote against the bill, vote it down, that they would not be scored highly. Um, For those who don't know, most groups around politics release report cards around election time or or after session that sort of grades that person on how well they performed in the eyes of that group. So if you score lowly with Tennessee Right to Life, that means that you're probably uh, adding exceptions in or that you are allowing looser restrictions around abortion. Um, obviously, you know, 
it was it was sort of rare and Cameron Sexton actually had this to say. You can have those conversations in your room. You can have those conversations in email. But to do it in the committee, to try to intimidate this committee to go a certain direction is uncalled for. Yeah, and it, it may not come through in that audio clip, but on video, which was actually in my at the state house reel last week, you can really see how upset Speaker Sexton was. Got it. Uh, so what do people in the state Senate think about this proposal? Well, I think mostly uh, it's about the same. Some people are for it. Some people are against it. But the biggest thing is Senate leader uh, Randy McNally has already said that he wants the law to stay the way that it is. He said that, uh, you know, there's no need for a change. But he also doesn't say that he wants to dictate how it works. He says he's fine with it going through the committee process and is not going to, you know, try to twist anybody's arm to make them vote another uh, one way or another. Got uh, it. So um, have we heard anything about where Governor Lee might stand on this? You know, he uh, really stays out of this uh, legislative work. He waits until a, a bill reaches his desk to comment on it. And usually you don't know anything until the day of when he either vetoes, uh, which is something that he's never done, when he either passes it or lets it go uh, through without his signature. Um, now, the reason he doesn't veto, it, in most people's understanding, is because the Republican supermajority could come back and easily vote it into law anyways. Got it. All right. So uh, shifting gears here a little bit. Um, so another story you reported on that got a lot of attention was not about a law at all. It was about a dashiki. Um, hundreds of thousands of people read your piece on State Representative Justin Pearson, who we had on this show last week. Uh, but if you would just, <clears throat> excuse me, catch people up on that story. Yeah, so so the representative was elected later than others due to the death of Representative Barbara Cooper, who passed away right at, before she was elected. So since he won his election late, they had to do his uh, swearing-in ceremony last week, and or, or maybe two weeks ago now, sorry. And, and so to that ceremony, he wore a dashiki. Most members went on the House floor or the Senate floor wear a suit and tie, and a representative called him out uh, in a backwards way to say that he should have also done the same and wore a suit and tie. Um, you know, now, as far as the details on the story and why it became so big, I, I'm not really 100% sure on why. Uh, I think mostly because he went against uh, this standard more so than a rule. Um, and that sort of, you know, upset people and then made other people feel like... Uh, supported like you know because a minority was doing something that was against the standard all right so guns are also <clears throat> can be an important topic uh, when it comes to the state legislature what's happening on that front yeah so a few years ago lawmakers began allowing adults 21 and over to uh, permitless carry or constitutional carry as some people call it um, shortly after that law went into effect 18 to 20 year olds filed a lawsuit against the state saying it's unconstitutional to treat adults 21 and over differently than those 18 and older. Uh, ultimately, the state attorney general came back and actually agreed with them. And so now the state legislature uh, sort of following the attorney general is now uh, moving forward with a bill that would allow 18 year olds and up to carry uh, without a license. There are at least two pieces of legislation that are targeting trans people. Um, let's start with the one that would ban drag shows in public settings. Where does that one stand? 
So that that bill is already passed the Senate and is scheduled to be heard on the House floor this Thursday. If it passes, and it's it's likely that it will because of how fast it's already moved, uh, it'll head to the governor for his signature, which at that point, I think he has like 10 or, 10 or 14 business days to sign it. And the other piece of legislation um, would prohibit trans teens from receiving gender-affirming care. And uh, some have even proposed that parents could be prosecuted for child abuse if they seek out that kind of care for their children. Where are we with that one? So that bill still has some ways ways to go. Um, it, it does look like it will ultimately pass. It's just they've been making changes to it. One of the biggest changes is removing that child abuse part so parents are would not be liable for that anymore. All right. Aside from trans people, another target of the legislature this session seems to be Nashville. There have been proposals to cut the size of the Metro Council in half, take away the city's oversight of the airport, and pull the funding mechanism that pays for the debt on the Music City Center. All of this because the city declined to host next year's Republican National Convention out of concern for security. So are state lawmakers still pushing ahead with these ideas? Oh, yeah. I mean, it it hasn't slowed down a bit yet. Now, there is a chance that it could cool down, and and that was announced last week. So if, you know, Nashville Mayor John Cooper uh, bids to host the 2028 Republican National Convention, then possibly they may back off on some things. The one main thing they're willing to back off on is stripping the public funding uh, or the funding that goes towards the convention center. But they haven't said that they would pull off on on downsizing Metro, the Sports Authority, the Airport Authority, any of the other ideas, just just one of them so far. But we'll we'll have to see where this goes. Right. Okay. so one last quick one. Uh, Randy McNally, the Senate speaker, uh, missed some time due to his health. They said he needed pacemaker surgery. Uh, Is he back on the job wielding the gavel? Yes, he he presided over the Senate last week, and you know the events that led up to his pacemaker surgery are pretty interesting. Actually, he noticed that his Apple Watch uh, was alerting him about his heart rate. He then went and grabbed Senator Briggs, who was a cardiovascular surgeon, and he told McNally to head straight to the hospital. Once he got there, they saw his heart rate, and he was immediately sent into surgery. But I just thought it was really unique how an Apple Watch essentially sort of saved his life. Wow! All right. Well, uh, congrats on a quick recovery there, uh, sounds like. That is WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey. Blaze, thanks as always for catching us up, for being here, and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at the future of electric vehicles in Nashville and beyond. Do you drive an EV? Are you planning to buy one? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. My first car was a 1986 Oldsmobile Custom Cruiser station wagon, the kind with fake wood paneling on the sides and a third row seat that folded up facing backward. It was nearly as long as a full-size van, and it was a beast. Uh, And with a giant gas-guzzling internal combustion engine, it was certainly a product of its time. 
But as much as I loved the purr of that old V8, I know cars like that one are already going the way of the T-Rex. And while I may not have one just yet, electric cars are the future. So are we ready for that future here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee? What will it look like? And how will we get there? My next guest can help answer those questions. Ping An Chen is Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Tennessee Tech University, and Laurel Creech is Assistant Director of General Services, Division of Sustainability at Metro. Ping and Laurel, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Steve. Great to have you. Um, so, Ping An, I'd like to start with you. You drove an electric car to the studio today, is that right? Yes, I drove a Chevy Bolt EUV. All right. Uh, can you just describe it for people who may not have seen one? Yes. A Chevy Bolt EUV is one of the mainstream affordable electric vehicle in the market. Um, it, it, it's, it's a hatchback-like style of uh, electric vehicle. It offers um, 256 miles per full charge. And that's uh, that gives me plenty of energy to drive from Cookville to uh, the office here today. All right. Yeah. So that's not a short drive either. But you felt confident making it here. Yeah. It's very comfortable to sitting and drive electric vehicle. It's very quiet. And then I can pick up the speed very, very quickly. And it saved me a certain period, amount of time today. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds great. Um, what what kinds of questions do you get from people who, who see you driving it? Well, uh, most of the time, I personally drove a uh, Mark E, and so the body style of Mark E is very appealing. So people, when I see the car, and that, they immediately notice that car is different. And then they approach me and talking about many, surprisingly, many of them already are familiar with this is an electric car. They just like to learn more about electric car performance um, from the uh, cost perspective and from the driving range perspective and from the charging perspective, from the charging infrastructure perspective. No, they ask all type of question and that, that curiosity is, is else, uh, all, uh, everywhere when you talk to uh, the community, particularly when they have interest in electric car. Got it, yeah. Uh, was it much of an adjustment for you switching over to an electric? Mm, not not too much. I think it, uh, from a driving perspective, actually in the experience better because it's it's very quiet and you can pick up the speed really fast and it's very smooth. It's called very smooth uh, operation because the motor could offer a lot of torque while at a low speed, which is very different from our gas car. Now, if there is any kind of adjustment, I need to mention a couple of things. Number one, it's required. If there's any kids playing around, you got to be pay attention because they may, may not hear the no, noise from the engine and they um, they may involve into accidents. So just be, just be careful at the very beginning and until they get used to this. And a car normally make a certain noise, uh, man-made noise, to inform the the surrounding, uh, 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 you know, pedestrian and other cars. But a big adjustment is more about your planning. You need to plan where you can charge in the car, 
most of the time, 90% of the time you charge in the car at home, where you charge, how often you need to charge, and this is all varies from one person to another, right? You drive more, you charge more often. You drive less, you charge less often, right? So Laurel, I understand the city of Nashville has made a commitment to electric vehicles for official city vehicles. First of all, why make that kind of commitment? Yes, so indeed, we do have a mandate, an electrification mandate for our metro vehicle fleet, and we do have a lot. We're consolidated fleets. We have, we have almost 4,000 fleet units, wow. and uh, we are moving towards 100% electrifying all those except for emergency vehicles by 2050. And we're doing that for a variety of reasons. One, it's emissions reductions, um, which obviously has health benefits to our community with air quality, a variety of other aspects. Um, also, the cost of ownership um, is also another reason why we've identified that moving in that direction. And third, it's it's the right thing to do as we continue to work on mitigating climate change and uh, reducing our emissions that these electric vehicles will help us do that. So uh, where are we at right now in terms of that? in terms of that commitment to electric vehicles? Sure, so our first goal is in 2025 to have 25% of our eligible vehicles transition to electric vehicles, and we're doing pretty good with that. Um, we have 57 EVs on order in our fleet currently, and we'll be having uh, probably close to over 92 by the time we reach that 2025 goal, and that will be our around 20-25%, which is needed for uh, our mandate. I like that you said when we meet this goal, not if we meet this goal. Um, how far back does this commitment go? Sure. So back in 2010, um, Metro General Services decided that we need to support and grow a culture of electric vehicles. And so we determined we need to go ahead and put EV charging stations, level two charging stations in all our new facilities. And we did. We have been building a lot of new facilities for Metro operations since 2010. And so at this point, we have over 88 free EV chargers, level two chargers that are available to the public and um, easily accessible. And people can go to plugshare.com to, to see that. Um, in addition to that, we did purchase some electric vehicle Nissan Leafs for our car share for Metro employees to get them used to and comfortable with driving an EV. It obviously reduces emissions if they have an ICE vehicle, as well as getting them you know, understanding about the value and all the things that were just stated about what it is to drive an EV so that as we transition to EVs, not only from a fleet perspective, but also drive them to consider EV adoption personally for the personal vehicles, that it's an easier transition. Uh, just a quick clarification. When you say ICE, you mean internal combustion? Yes, engine, sorry, right? the yeah. lingo. <laughs> the lingo. Right. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer Steve Harouche sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about electric vehicles with Laurel Creech from Metro Nashville and Associate Professor Pingan Chen of Tennessee Tech. What questions do you have about electric cars? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. So, Pingan, uh, you've been working on a project to encourage folks in rural areas to buy electric vehicles. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, and we actually currently have uh, finished the phase one of uh, rural electrification study. And then we are currently in the phase two um, uh, project to uh, you know, deploy what we have learned the best practice in a, in a phase one to introduce electric car in, in a rural community. So let me, uh, let me give, provide additional information. So we have a project currently called Rural Reimagined. And you can think about reimagining the transportation and mobility in a rural community. 
So the project aims to help rural communities save the cost of transportation so that they can utilize the, the useful, uh, you know, limited resources for food, health care, and many other things, right? Why? Because rural community, they normally drive longer mileage than the urban counterpart. And the, the, the data has shown this is rural community, they drove longer miles. And, and they normally have lower income. And if we can help them uh, reduce their transportation cost and lower the burden of, of the transportation, and I think there's a way to, this is a critical way to help them improve the quality of their lives. So that is the, the motivation. So in the Rural Reimagine Project, we have done uh, several very, very uh, exciting things to help rural community adopt electric vehicle. For example, we are in the working with uh, regional stakeholders. We have 60 plus partners from five states, including Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio, and Virginia in this uh, rural Appalachia region. That's in the main project site. We are building 250 plus charging stations in rural community, including the, the DC fast charging station. Sometimes we call it supercharger and the public level two charging station where you it's opportunity-based charger. If you go to grocery store, you park in a car, you park the vehicle in, right? For a couple hours, you can get the get energy. And we also build, build a charging station in the multi-family, the lower income apartment. So that help them get, you know, purchase you or used electric car so that they can charge in the car. We also uh, established a very unique electric vehicle test drive program. Every single community, resident in the community can borrow in the car, different types. Uh, they can use the car for two weeks at no cost. So that they can, during these two weeks, they can learn all the operational um, knowledge about electric car and the benefit of an electric car, lowering their cost. Mm -hmm. By the way, How, please, go ahead. You said that they can drive it for up to two weeks? Yes. What's the, what has the response been like so far? I can tell you uh, from our early proof of concept study, we'll call the phase one study, 90% um, of them give very positive response. They will buy electric car as the next vehicle. 90%, even rural area. That is really, really a shocking result to me personally. And that's why we are so excited to, you know, uh, scale up this, uh, uh, you know, the concept of give the electric car out to the community, have them try it, have them try long enough so they know, not only know, they know, you know, quiet in the electric car, uh, you know, very fast acceleration, they learn where they can they charge their car, can, they can just easily park their car in the, in the 110 volt outlet, everyone has that. Or they can, they can put a, park in a vehicle in a 220 volt outlet, like a dryer outlet, right? They, 90, 95% of the time, they charge their car in their home, in their home not outside. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, I understand you grew up in a rural area yourself. Um, what, what are some of the transportation challenges that may be different in those areas? Um, the rural areas has very unique, uh, you know, choice of electric car because the, the application is very, very diverse. They use a lot of uh, pickup truck. They use a lot of the bigger size vehicle that 
that can do many things, right? You have a lot of, sometimes you have more uh, kids, you need to put the, put the good tools in that. So, so those vehicles are normally very, very inefficient. And then switching to electric car is a way to help them, you know, you know, saving money, really saving money, right? And at the same time, there's a benefit like emission reduction, you know, making the helping the climate change better on the climate change. So those are it's it's always there. But I believe for the rural community, looking at affordability and high efficiency, I think electric car is the right solution. And it's not the only solution. I just make it clear. And there's still some other situation you need to use gas powered vehicle or diesel powered vehicle. All right. So Laurel, um. I've heard about federal tax credits for buying an electric car. Um, I'm curious, as we are sort of trying to get more electric vehicles on the road, uh, is there anything that the, the city is doing to incentivize this? Well, right now, the city doesn't necessarily have any incentives yet for purchasing electric vehicles. I think for from our perspective, we like to grow that support system by offering uh, viable charging, um, accessible, um, cost-effective charging for all of our community. And that looks like uh, quite a roadmap because we have a lot of public right away where we can be putting charging that is available to our public to use. So from our from the city's perspective, it's all about building the infrastructure to support those who own the electric vehicles. And so that's what we're doing right now is to see what that looks like, where they need to go, um, where are the, the um, modes of increase of density of transportation going so that we can go ahead and begin offering additional chargers for those people. We've been talking so far about electric cars, but these aren't the only electric vehicles that the city is thinking about and investing in, right? Right. So we do have a bike share program called National B-Cycle that's all transitioned to electric bicycles, which is very exciting. Um, so that system is uh, throughout most of the urban core center. And in addition to that, we have electric scooters that are available for people to use as well. And then as we look to transition our EV parking options, we also want to be inclusive of the other op, uh, opportunities for e-bikes because that's the transition with bicycles now. The e-bikes are growing in demand. We want to be able to offer uh, charging opportunity for folks who do use e-bikes and if they have their own scooter too, that they'll be able to plug in. What are the city's goals for electric vehicle ownership among private citizens? Well, we of course want to continue to grow uh, the uh, ad adopting the number of folks who have EVs. And that's a, a, a process, a variety of different things. One, it is to the consumer, the, the, the individuals who are purchasing the vehicles so that we can arm them with information, act, accurate information on when and how to buy a vehicle and all the questions that go into that. Number two, it's also on the dealerships and the manufacturers to make sure they're providing the information to the buyer. And as well as if the EV has to go in for any type of minimal maintenance, of course, it's not an, um, an engine and a combustion engine, so the maintenance is very lower. But if it does, that the turnaround time is quick. So it would be equivalent to if you had your old gasoline um, vehicle that the there's there's no there's everything should be seamless if not even easier as an EV owner so that's predominantly what we're trying to do so I'm I'm thinking about the rolling blackouts we had this winter and I, I have to ask are there concerns that you know about having enough electricity to charge up all these new electric vehicles we might have um, so, so first, I do want to mention that for the electrification mandate that we have, electric vehicles are exempt. 
So those vehicles will not be having to move to electric. So um, that's a diversification of our full fuel uses for our vehicles. Number one. Number two is that nowadays the vehicles that are coming out have quite a significant range. And uh, typically they're not even needing to be charged every other day. Sometimes it's, it's once or twice a week for our EVs and our fleet. So if the um, if the grid is down for a few days and we don't see an issue with that. Uh, however, we are exploring some battery EV chargers where we could have resiliency for charging to be available at all times. Um, I do think that diversification, as noted, of fuel sources is important. Um, we deal with that with if we were all gas, uh, uh, natural gas, we'd have issues. Um, and so it's, it's all about that diversification. Ping in, what would you like to see from the state in terms of uh, rural electric car infrastructure? Well, uh, this is a big one, and this is what traditionally described as a chicken and eggs problem. And and you, you people tend to buy electric car when they see more charging infrastructure outside in the community. So while most of the time we are charging our car at home, and I still believe it's very important to have uh, necessary charging infrastructure out, outside in the in the uh, public domain. So it you mentally you can settle them down. They know they can use in the car. In case they forgot to charge at home, they can charge you know in the public. If they go to on a road trip, there's a charging station they can stop when they can stop and they can charge in the vehicle while they have doing some. Uh, resting and then and having some stretch in their legs. So all of these point to the importance of charging infrastructure. I definitely like the to promote the mobility equities in the rural areas. We traditionally we have seen things happened in the urban area first, and then come later it come to the rural part. And we the, a lot of efforts initiative I'm supporting trying to change the way we position the rural community in terms of adopting uh, affordable and money-saving electric cars because it, several years you can easily create a big gap between the urban and rural community and we don't want to see that happen we don't we want this urban and and rural community you know transition to EV at the same pace almost at the same time so to the policy maker I definitely like to suggest to put uh, sufficient resources um, to the rural community, make sure uh, the benefit of the building a charger across throughout the state uh, will go to the rural community as well, so they can do intercity uh, 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 intercity transportation, and they can also uh, put it in the rural community. Sometimes I would say they can attract the the visitors come to a rural town, they can, the town can get exposed, and they can help the local business grow. And this is another way we call the community benefit for electric vehicle charging uh, infrastructure. Yeah, you said earlier that um, your program has been really successful. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, the successful is measured by the response, the words coming out from the our rural community and that's not not coming from us that's one thing and it is measured by mostly by the response from our our community who participated in such a program and i have seen 90 percent of them have positive 
uh, attitude towards electric vehicle, would like to pre- uh, purchase electric vehicle as the next vehicle or recommend electric vehicle to their friends. This is one thing. And we, uh, on, uh, on paper, we also doing a comprehensive uh, data uh, analysis. We check in the data utilization, how they use the electric vehicle. It proves several things. Number one, electric vehicle is feasible to use in a rural area, even they have longer uh, traveling distance every day. Secondly, charging station when we build in a rural community is frequently used. Okay, so that is really shows that uh, it having the impact to the community in terms of supporting the charging, um, either from a local EV user or visitor. All right, well, that was Ping En Chen, Associate Professor at Tennessee Tech and Principal Investigator on the Rural Reimagine Program. He was joined by Laurel Creech with Metro Nashville's General Services Sustainability Division. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you, our pleasure. Thank you, Steve. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll find out why so many electric vehicles and parts are being manufactured here in Tennessee. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. The Leaf, the Bolt, the ID4. These are three of the electric vehicles currently in production in our state. Two of them are made right here in Middle Tennessee, and pretty soon they'll be joined by a massive electric vehicle mega campus to our west near Memphis. That's right, electric cars are not only the fastest growing consumer vehicle category, they're also becoming a bigger and bigger part of our state economy. And it's not just the cars. We're also making batteries, chargers, and other essential EV parts. How did we get here, and what could it mean for the future of our region? To get a sense of this quickly evolving landscape, I'm joined by Ainsley Kelso with the statewide program Drive Electric Tennessee, and Courtney Piper, Executive Director of the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks Thanks for having having us. All right, so Ainsley, I'd like to start with you. Before the break, we were talking about electric cars and getting people to switch over from internal combustion. What goals have you all set at Drive Electric Tennessee for getting folks to make that switch? Absolutely. Um, We've definitely set a lot of goals, um, you know, with, with with the big goal in mind that Drive Electric Tennessee wants to see at least 200,000 electric vehicles on Tennessee's roadways by 2028. This is a rather lofty goal um, given where we are currently and where we want to be, but we really expect to see exponential change in the amount of EVs in the state of Tennessee over the next several years. And so we we think it's possible despite it being a fairly lofty goal. All right. That may be a little bit lofty. You mentioned where we're at right now. Can you do you can you tell us where we're at right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I 
know, I'd have to double check, so don't um, don't hold me to it exactly, but I know that we're just a little over 20,000 electric vehicles in Tennessee right now. Um, this is thanks to data that is uh, pulled about registered um, electric vehicles from the uh, Tennessee Department of Revenue, and that information gets post posted publicly on Atlas EV Hub. Um, these are great a great resource to keep up with how many electric vehicles are registered in the state of Tennessee, as well as how many are registered in each county in Tennessee. So I think as statewide, we are looking at about a little over 20,000. Um, as of the end of last year. So um, we don't have the most up-to-date data, but we are uh, looking to hopefully have that data here pretty soon. All right. So a, a little ways to go. What what will it take for us as a state to make it to that 200,000 goal? A lot of things. Um, unfortunately, it's not just a, a one-size-fits-all, one answer um, going to get us to where we need to be. There, um, Of course, there's the issue of what comes first, um, charging or vehicles. And I think the way that Drive Electric Tennessee sees it is we don't see it as a one is going to happen before the other. They are going to have to happen in tandem. So um, as um, a lot of people know, there are a lot of initiatives, both um, from the federal government, from several state agencies and TVA. Um, there's lots of different funding being put into um, electric vehicle charging infrastructure um, all throughout the U.S., but especially here in Tennessee. And over the next I would say three to five years, we're going to see a pretty, um, pretty big growth in the number of stations that are all around the state of Tennessee, especially along all major highways and interstates, all these major corridors. We're going to see a lot of electric vehicle charging equipment that is going to allow people to travel cross state without having to worry about where they're going to stop to charge. Hopefully, with um, with more charging infrastructure and people becoming more aware of these electric vehicles, as well as us seeing a um, an increase in more affordable electric vehicles being created, more used electric vehicles hitting the used vehicle market, all of these things combined are going to see an increase in people purchasing electric vehicles. Um, a lot of it has to do with the availability on the ends of the manufacturers, um, so we have to have vehicles available. But the good news is people want to buy these cars. Um, we are seeing growth every single time that um, we get the numbers about how Tennessee is looking as far as registered um, EVs. And people want these cars. People are buying electric vehicles. And it's just a matter of making it an equitable, um, an equitable process that everyone can participate in. All right. Uh, Courtney, tell me about the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council. How did it form? Energy Business Council champions advanced energy as an economic development and job creation strategy. How we formed is somewhere around 2010, um, we had been, uh, my company had been working on some climate and energy legislation in Washington, Washington DC, and had been working with a lot of clean energy companies in Tennessee. And I thought, I wonder if all of these companies would find any value in coming together. And by the way, there sure are a lot of them, a lot than a lot more than I think anyone had ever thought of. So a couple of years later, fast forward, uh, we ran a couple of focus groups across the state and there were companies and researchers and entrepreneurs and public sector said, yeah, you know, that that sounds good to have one organization that rep represents the totality of our what we had been calling clean energy economy. but 
you know what, we don't need another organization that's going to debate whether a particular technology is clean, green, or sustainable. We need to start looking at energy innovation as a means to economic development. And that's how the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council was formed. Our definition of advanced energy is technology neutral, and it includes electricity and transportation. What kind of impact are these kinds of companies, these advanced energy companies, having on the state economy right now? The economic impact of advanced energy in the state of Tennessee is huge. We, every three years, take a look at Tennessee's advanced energy economy, and our last report showed that nearly 394,000 Tennesseans are employed in the advanced energy sector. It includes about 20,000 businesses, and it contributes $46 billion to the state's GDP. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer, producer Steve Harouche sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about electric vehicles. My guests are Ainsley Kelso with Drive Electric Tennessee and clean energy advocate Courtney Piper from the Advanced Energy Business Council. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. Ainsley, we've seen a real influx lately with companies coming to Tennessee to make electric cars, but also other EV components. What do you think makes Tennessee a destination for these types of businesses? You know, I think there are a lot of th reasons why companies are coming to uh, to Tennessee specifically to bring this uh, bring this technology and innovation here. I think some of it has to do with um, the availability of land for manufacturing, for being able to build um, these new facilities or to utilize old um, facilities and kind of revamp them and, uh, and, you know, renovate them to fit their current needs. I think we have a lot of that in Tennessee. And so people are looking for that. I think we are seeing a bit of a chain effect. So once a couple, um, a couple people in the industry realized that Tennessee was a great place to be, everyone else is kind of following suit. Um, I think people are learning from others in the industry and seeing well, why are they going to Tennessee and following suit with that saying, you know, seeing the reasons why Tennessee is a great state. And the other thing is, I think they see a lot of potential here. Um, I think we do have a lot of potential in Tennessee to become a leader in this industry and become a leader in the electric vehicle industry as a whole. Um, we are, and we're well on our way to doing so. Um, we have got a strong workforce here in Tennessee and we have a lot of programs um, a lot of people that are dedicated to educating a workforce that can be ready to work on this technology. Um, we have a lot, we have a workforce that is, um, you know, has historically been ready to go, easy to learn, wanting to work on these hands-on kind of projects. Mm -hmm. And so I think we, um, we're going to see more and more people come here because they, they believe in us, they see the workforce potential, and they see the land opportunity here in the state. Well, for, for this kind of chain effect uh, to, to really happen, it has to start somewhere. Courtney, uh, what would you say is driving growth around electric vehicles in particular? With electric vehicles in particular, it's, it's really a lot of different factors all converging together. First of all, we've had some very, very key pieces of federal legislation that have sought to incentivize and build the infrastructure that's required 
for the electric vehicle industry to thrive. And I'm not just talking about charging stations. I'm talking about building a domestic battery supply chain, which is going to be absolutely critical. Uh, we've had a lot of automakers set goals for the times when they are going to stop manufacturing internal combustion engines um, anywhere from 2030, 2035 to 2040. So there is a lot of interest um, at a federal level that in turn unlocked a lot of private sector capital and private sector investments, which is why we are seeing uh, places like Blue Oval City pop up and why we're seeing Volkswagen expand its assembly lines and Nissan and GM in Tennessee. Also, with all of the assets that we have in Tennessee that are more research focused, we have uh, the the Department of Energy's largest science and energy national laboratory is in Tennessee. We have the nation's largest public power provider, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and our state's uh, flagship university, the University of Tennessee. They've all had this focus on electrification and electrification of transportation. So we've got a confluence of all of these factors coming together in the great state of Tennessee. Now, Ainsley, as you mentioned earlier, Drive Electric Tennessee has set this goal of 200,000 EVs on our state's roads by 2028. Are there any incentives from the state for people maybe like me who, who are thinking about buying an EV? Unfortunately, no. Um, there are not currently any in, um, incentives by the state government um, that are you're able to um, take part of in order to get an electric vehicle. Now, that doesn't mean there are no incentives at all. Um, the federal government does offer tax credits um, for electric vehicle purchases. So you can go online and very easily find a list of what vehicles currently qualify for that tax credit, and you're able to get that on a new electric vehicle purchase. There are also lots of um, utility companies throughout the state of Tennessee that offer various kinds of incentives. Um, so if you're within their operating area, they offer you know, if you install a home charging unit, they'll provide a rebate to you for installing that charging unit or whatever it may be. There are several of those types of incentives as well. Um, we hope to see one day um, every state in the U.S. have some kind of statewide incentive for people to change to electric vehicles or some kind of hybrid vehicle. But currently in the state of Tennessee, we don't have a statewide one. So uh, speaking of incentives, uh are there any state level incentives to, to bring these companies that we're seeing uh, to make electric vehicles and other EV components like batteries and chargers, Courtney? To my knowledge, the State Department of Economic and Community Development is offering all the, the state incentives that they have available in their toolkit to build the electric vehicle supply chain in the state of Tennessee. Um, not unlike what they would use for any large company, large manufacturer or headquarters that they would want to locate in Tennessee. And it's those concentrated efforts that usually involve TVA too, because electric vehicle um, auto manufacturers as well as their sp supply chains also have a lot of power needs. So it is really the state economic, uh, the state department of economic and community development working with the Tennessee Valley Authority to make these deals happen in the state. All right, we got a DM on Twitter from Brett. He says, quote, I've driven an electric car since 2012 why is the Tennessee legislature so hostile to the taxation of electric vehicles? I agree about paying a fair share, but recent plans to increase the taxation of electric cars seems punitive. Ainsley, can, can you respond to that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as it currently stands, for those that may not know, there is a $100 fee that electric vehicle drivers have to pay um, kind of on top of their regular vehicle registration fees. That fee is meant to take into account any of the taxes that an electric vehicle driver is not paying at the gas pump. Um, as we all know, there are some taxes that you pay um, when you go and pump gas, and those some of those go back to the state to do roadway um, development, bridge development, and um, construction work and things like that. So we want um, electric vehicle drivers, the kind of thought behind that initial $100 is that that money goes back into the state. That way, um, electric vehicle drivers are contributing to that. And to my knowledge, while, um, while no one wants to pay extra fees by any means, um, most EV drivers are under, they understand the purpose of that $100 and they are happy to pay it because they know that they're contributing to something greater that everyone else is contributing to in their own way. However, there is some hesitancy um, to people to raising that fee. They don't want to see it go higher than $100 a year um, with good reason. It can be more expensive. It can be cost prohibitive for people to, um, to get electric vehicles. And it definitely is going to play into the equity aspect of um, adopting electric vehicles. Because if all of a sudden there is an additional $300 annual mm. fee to drive an EV, that's going to keep people from being able to um, to drive an EV. So there are a lot of reasons for that people don't want um, to see this raise. In general, Drive Electric Tennessee is happy to, just to see the um, you know the legislation talking about this and starting to have this conversation. This is a conversation that's going to be happening all over the country, not just in the not just in Tennessee. And so it's good to be starting this conversation now and, you know, making these decisions now about what's um, what's a, a good price, what makes sense for these things. Um, I will say on uh, the Drive Electric Tennessee website, we did do an analysis fairly recently um, looking at kind of based on um, different kinds of internal combustion engine vehicles, what those drivers would pay in um, mm -hmm. in taxes compared to that $100 um, electric vehicle fee. And what we did find is that the $100 is pretty um, pretty on par with what an internal combustion engine driver would, would pay a all year. Right. So um, that is right. generally what we found. Got it. Uh, so Courtney, just real quick, um, we got less than 30 seconds here, but when you see this momentum that seems to be building around EVs right now, what potential do you see for how it could change our state? The, the excitement around the electric vehicle supply chain can fundamentally change communities for the better in the state of Tennessee in terms of being able to provide high quality jobs for generations upon generations. That was Courtney Piper, Executive Director of the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council. She was joined by Ainsley Kelso with Drive Electric Tennessee. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for being here. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, sharpen your pencils because we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our episode all about comics and graphic novels. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Rose Gilbert and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Khalil Ecolona is our host. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. And I'm senior producer Steve Harouche. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Alexa Wojtek. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. 
I'm Steve Harouche. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.